Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. In my research, I come across small stories all the time. Many of these stories are too small for an hour-long show, but they work well when combined together to make an interesting collection. I always enjoy it when we get a chance to talk about offbeat stories and legends. Today, we have seven unique stories. The first one called Geronimo's Ghost, followed by a story called Puppy Love. After that, a flagpole mystery. Next, World War II kamikaze bats. After that, how Wild Bill Donovan got his name. Then, America's top TV chef, an OSS agent in World War II. And finally, the rest of the story. Where to begin? What if I told you that Geronimo's spirit haunts a deserted fort on Santa Rosa Island just seven miles from Pensacola Beach, Florida? You might say, that's crazy. Geronimo was an Apache who was best known for his attacks on settlers and militia around the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, you'd be right. But Geronimo was captured, and as a cooperative prisoner of the U.S. Army, he was transported to Florida and held for a few years at Fort Pickens on Santa Rosa Island. His ghost is said to be very active at that location. And here's the story. Fort Pickens was named after Revolutionary War hero Andrew Pickens and built in 1834 by indentured slaves, its purpose being to help defend Fort McRae, Fort Baranus, and the Pensacola Naval Shipyard. It was a brand new, innovative design wherein the forts were aligned in such a way as to provide excellent defense of the harbor there. When the Civil War broke out, Fort Pickens was considered the strongest of the three forts, and it lived up to its reputation. It stayed a Union garrison throughout the war despite numerous attacks on it by Confederates. After the war, it was slowly modernized with bigger guns, but it didn't see any more action until it was finally converted to a penitentiary. And that's where Geronimo comes in. Geronimo was one of the last of the warring Indians in the Southwest to surrender. And if you recall our story on Tom Horn... Horn, as a young man, had been assigned to live on an Apache reservation so he could get to know the Indian ways and eventually Geronimo himself. And when the time for surrender came, Horn was an important interpreter in those final days of freedom for Geronimo. After his surrender, Geronimo was escorted on a much-publicized train ride to Florida, where he was imprisoned at Fort Pickens from 1885 to 1887, along with several of his warriors and their families. Geronimo was allowed access to the public, and he became a sort of folk hero to the many locals who flocked to see him. He sold buttons off his wool coat to locals, signed autographs, and sat for hours telling stories to kids and adults alike. Geronimo is known to have had nine wives during his storied life, two of those staying with him there at Fort Pickens. So life wasn't too rough for him there. But somebody in command didn't take kindly to all the preferential treatment he was getting and issued orders for the old chief to be transported back to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, in the dead of the night. There he wasted away and died February 17, 1909, very much missing his old home and his brief life as a celebrity at Fort Pickens. 
As the years went by, the legend of Geronimo faded away, as did the need for coastal fortresses. The old forts that once guarded America's coastlines became vacant and were left to deteriorate. In the case of Fort Pickens, the U.S. National Park Service stepped in and repaired it, making it a tourist attraction, and a pretty popular one it was by the early 70s. Long subterranean tunnels led from gun ports and around the walls, and their walls, musty and echoing the past, became a popular feature. Grass still grows on top of those old tunnels where cannons stand as silent sentinels reminding us of the past. Even while the fort was being rebuilt, stories of strange phenomena began to circulate among the rangers and construction workers there. Stories of hearing footsteps where there are no humans, and long echoing gasps coming from the dark corners of the silent tunnels. Many believe that the spirit of Geronimo still resides there, as well as that of his wives and loyal tribe members. In one article I read that park rangers conduct nightly tours by lantern light, and reports from visitors of paranormal sensations are frequent, although their official website has them closing at 5 p.m. Even while the fort was being rebuilt, stories of strange phenomena began to circulate among the rangers and construction workers. Many believe that the spirit of Geronimo still resides there, as well as that of his wives and loyal tribe members. According to one article, park rangers conduct nightly tours by lantern light, although, note this, the official website says they close at 5 p.m., and reports from visitors of paranormal sensations are frequent. Physical evidence, such as orbs appearing in photographs, has also turned up. It's not unique to the Pensacola area, which apparently is home to a full score of paranormal haunts, but it is spooky. Electric cameras and video recorders commonly lose power when, when operating in Fort Pickett. Screams from nowhere are heard occasionally, and lines of men seen marching across the grassy tops of the tunnels are seen against the sky just before dawn and during dusk. Some researchers believe the haunting goes back before Geronimo, and that the cause may well be the misplaced grave markers that sit just outside the fort. There's a small, rectangular fenced cemetery near the front section of the fort, which is said to hold the gravestone of a plantation family who were re which was reinterred to Fort Barrancas, which is now the site of Sherman Airfield's runway strips. No peace to be found under a runway. To make it worse for the park rangers at Fort Pickens, their, office, their offices are said to be the site of the fort's summer homes, which were kept very secluded from the main buildings of the fort. Legend has it that at least one park ranger quit due to the unsettling atmosphere of these solitary offices after dark. In review, if you're planning a visit, bring backup batteries for your recording devices. Don't be shocked if your freshly charged iPhone goes dead on you. Position yourself alone in one of those underground tunnels and turn on your video-slash-voice recorder and ask, Is anyone here? Give a little time for an answer. And when you hear a scream, run like hell. All the way to the main gate, which is located about a quarter mile east of the entrance gate to Fort Pickens on State Route 399 in Pensacola. Again, they say the center is only open till 5, but you can always ask for a special evening tour. You never know. Make sure you stay in the presence of a ranger, though, and don't get separated. Or you might end up face-to-face -face with Geronimo. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. This one's called Puppy Love. You never know what you're going to find in Mexico. There's an urban legend out there about a California couple that went down to Mexico on vacation. They were staying in a small coastal town which was noted for large packs of small, stray dogs that would follow the tourists around hoping for a handout. One of these dogs, an unusual-looking mongrel puppy of unknown breeding, followed the couple all the way back to their apartment waiting outside their front door all night. The wife couldn't help but take pity on it, and she, against her husband's advice, decided to smuggle it back into the U.S. in their car. Back in Santa Barbara, the little animal grew quickly in his new home and soon dwarfed the woman's pet cat, which slept with one eye open all the time and studiously avoided the new border. But one day the woman returned from work to find her cat dead in the kitchen, killed by a wound in the neck. Her dog was cowering in the corner, with blood on its jaws and scratches all over its face. She assumed that whatever had killed the cat had killed the dog, not believing for a second that her darling little mutt could have done it. 
"'She took the dog to the vet to have its wounds treated, "'and they asked her to leave it there until the doctor could see it. "'Soon after, a phone call came in from the vet. "'Her little pooch,' the doctor said, "'was not a stray Mexican dog. "'It was an abnormally large sewer rat, "'an aggressive, invasive species of rat, "'and it would have to be put to sleep.'" This next story is from Gettysburg Flag Works. The American flag holds great significance in military culture. Even more than a symbol of freedom and patriotic ideals, its mere presence is a marker of territory, a symbol of resistance, and a proclamation of victory. Alternatively, the lowering of the flag, or its capture, signifies mourning and defeat. And so, it's not surprising that the flag, and even the pole on which it flies, has become the subject of military lore. Have you ever looked at the top of a flagpole and wondered what was inside that gold ball? Well, according to stories passed down through the military, there are very specific items hidden inside those shiny pole-top spheres. The exact items vary, depending on the telling of the tale, but the basis for the legend is always the same. A real-life scenario of capture the flag, in which the military base is overrun by enemy forces. In order to protect the sacred stars and stripes from falling into the wrong hands, a brave soldier must use the items hidden inside the gold ball on top of the flagpole to defend old glory to the death, or at least provide her with a proper burial. The most popular items claimed to be stored inside that gold ball are a razor blade, a match, and a bullet. Bet you never heard that one. The razor must be used to cut down the flag from the halyard, or tear it into strips. The match is for burning the flag the most dignified way in which to destroy it, according to the United States Flag Code, Title IV, Section 8K. And the bullet is either to be used as a final attempt to defend the flag or in assisting the soldier to end his or her own life. Another strange variation includes a penny for blinding the enemy, or perhaps more symbolically, to ensure the United States will never be broke. For those curious about the usefulness of a bullet without a gun, Some stories include details about a pistol being buried at the base of the flagpole, or some 50 paces away. We've even heard of a needle and thread being stashed inside the finial for repairing a damaged flag in the face of triumph. What's really inside that gold ball? The rather uninspiring truth is that there's nothing hidden inside those gold balls. Well, at least not in the flagpole finials that Gettysburg flags have on their site. Those gold finials are commonly referred to as trucks in military circles. The finial is mounted to flagpoles to keep rainwater out and serve as ornamentation. Balls are the most practical choice for flagpoles, since they won't catch and tear the flag if it blows up and over the pole. But gold eagle finials can also be used for a more traditional look. Tooth be told, they write, we still think the legend has merit. After all, it reinforces the symbolic importance of the American flag and a soldier's devotion to his or her duty. And then there's, believe it or not, kamikaze bats. The United States was engaged in a number of secret aviation projects during World War II, but this one takes the cake. Using kamikaze bats found in Mexico to dive-bomb enemy locations. This entire project could easily be described as egregious waste of military budget during wartime. A dental surgeon from Irwin, PA, is credited with the idea of using bats as bombers. Dr. Lytle S. Adams was vacationing in the Southwest on December 7, 1941, when he heard the shocking news of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Adams immediately headed home. He had just visited Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico, believed to house the world's largest bat colony, where he had been fascinated by the bats that emerged nightly to feed on insects. Thinking about that impressive bat colony, the dentist asked himself, I wonder if those millions of bats could be fitted with incendiary bombs and dropped from planes. What could be more devastating than such a firebomb attack? He recalled back in a 1948 interview. Of course, today they've replaced bats with drones, but this was forward thinking. He stopped by Carlsbad on his way home and captured some Mexican free-tailed bats, the most common species in North America. The free tails, also known as guano bats, are small brown mammals capable of catching more than a thousand mosquitoes or gnats in a night. Weighing about nine grams, the free tails can carry an external load more than twice their own weight. Back home, Adams looked up everything he could find about the tiny mammals and discovered that although bats are frequently vilified by the public, 
they're not usually dangerous to humans. They aren't blind, they don't get tangled up in one's hair, and they don't attack people. Although generally considered evil in Europe, they symbolize prosperity and happiness in China. The Navajo Indians believe them to be intermediaries between men and the gods. Bats range in size from the bumblebee bat of Thailand, which weighs less than a penny, to a mastiff bat, North America's largest flying mammal, with a 22-inch wingspread, and the giant flying fox bat, with a 6-foot wingspan, which is found primarily in Indonesia. Adams became convinced that bats could be used as bombers. On January 12, 1942, he sent a letter to the White House proposing that the government investigate this possibility. His suggestion was considered, along with hundreds of others from well-meaning citizens with poor winning ideas, but he was one of the few that reached the desk of the commander-in-chief. President Franklin D. Roosevelt forwarded a memo to Colonel William J. Donovan, also known as Wild Bill Donovan, head of OSS, which later became the CIA, then a coordinator of information, with a cryptic notation, This man is not a nut. It sounds like a perfectly wild idea, but it might be worth looking into. Donovan sent the proposal to the National Defense Research Committee, the NDRC, of the National Inventors Council. After reviewing Adams's idea, a memorandum titled Use of Bats as Vectors of Incendiary Bombs was sent to the committee on April 16, 1942, by Donald R. Griffin, a special research assistant. He described the proposal as using very large numbers of bats, each carrying a small incendiary time bomb. The bats would be released at night from airplanes, preferably at high altitudes, and the incendiaries would be timed to ignite after the bats had descended to low altitudes and taken shelter for the day. Since bats often roost in buildings, they could be released over settled areas with a good expectation that a large percentage would be roosting in buildings or other inflammable installations when the incendiary material was ignited. Griffin summarized his memo by saying that although this proposal seems bizarre and visionary at first glance, Extensive experience with experimental biology convinces the writer that if executed competently, it would have every chance of success. He recommended an investigation with all possible speed, accuracy, and efficiency by the U.S. Army Air Forces. Bomb development was passed on to the Army Chemical Warfare Service. Adams and a team of naturalists were immediately authorized to find bats for experimentation. The team visited a number of likely sites in Texas and New Mexico where the bats could be found in large quantities, mostly in caves, but also under bridges, in barns, and in large piles of rubbish. We visited a thousand caves and three thousand mines, Adams said. The speed was so imperative that we generally drove all day and night when we weren't exploring caves. We slept in the cars, taking turns at driving. One car in our search team covered 350,000 miles. The team first investigated the Mastiff Bat, which they determined could carry a one-pound stick of dynamite, but there was not a sufficient number of that variety available. The more common bat was the mule-eared or pallid species, which could carry three ounces. However, the naturalists concluded that the species was not sufficiently hardy for the work that needed to be done. They finally settled on the Mexican free-tailed bat for the project, Although it weighed only one-third of an ounce, experiments showed that it could fly fairly well with a payload of 15 to 18 grams. The Army's Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland, near Washington, D.C., was to design an incendiary bomb weighing no more than 18 grams. That must have been a fun project. The largest colony of freetails found during the search was an estimated 20 to 30 million that lived in the limestone Ney and Bracken Caves near Bandera in southwest Texas. At Ney Cave, U.S. Army Captain Wiley W. Carr reported that five hours' time is required for these animals to leave the cave while flying out in a dense stream 15 feet in diameter and so closely packed they could barely fly. Capturing the bats wasn't difficult. Team members passed nets on long poles back and forth over the cave entrance as the bats emerged from their lairs. As many as 100 were captured in two or three passes, after which they were placed in a refrigerated truck. Adams took some to the Chemical Warfare Service headquarters at Aberdeen, Maryland, and released them to show Army officials how they could each carry a dummy bomb. There was much opposition to the project from CWS officials, but in March of 43, the Army Air Force issued authority for the project to proceed by a memo, 
Subject, test of method to scatter incendiaries. Purpose, determine the feasibility of using bats to carry small incendiary bombs into enemy targets. Project members studied the habits of the bats intently. Louis Pfizer, assigned as chief chemist for the Adams Project, began to design bombs light enough to be carried by the free tails. His research showed that the British had designed miniature bombs during World War I, called baby incendiaries, made of thermite that weighed 6.4 ounces. Pfizer made two sizes of incendiaries that were oblong celluloid cases filled with thickened kerosene. A small time-to-lay igniter fuse was attached along one side. One size weighs 17 grams and would burn for four minutes with a 10-inch flame. The other weighed 22 grams and would burn for six minutes with a 12-inch flame. The time-to-lay igniter consisted of a firing pin held in tension against a spring by a thin steel wire. When the bombs were prepared for use, a copper chloride solution was injected into the cavity through which the steel wire passed. The copper chloride would corrode the wire in time. When it was completely corroded through, the firing pin snapped forward, striking the igniter head and lighting the kerosene. To attach the bomb to a bat, technicians clipped the case to the loose skin on the bat's chest with a surgical clip and a piece of string. The bats were dropped from a plane in a cardboard container that would open in midair at about a thousand feet. According to one CWS report, the bats were then expected to fly into hiding in dwellings or other structures, gnaw through the string, and leave the bombs behind. In early May of 1943, about 3,500 bats were collected at Carlsbad Caverns and flown in the North American B-25 that had been assigned to the project to Muroc Dry Lake, California, for tests. The bats were placed in refrigerators and forced to hibernate. On May 21, 1943, five boxes of bats were dropped from 5,000 feet, but the test was unsuccessful because the bats, not fully recovered from hibernation, could not fly. Of course, I'm remembering at this time an episode from an old television sitcom called WKRP, during which, at a town parade, they decided to drop live turkeys off the tops of buildings, believing, of course, that the turkeys would fly down into the streets. But as Les Despin, the reporter for the day, found out, along with the rest of them, turkeys can't fly very far. And bodies of turkeys were crashing to the pavement all throughout the parade. And while I'm off the subject... This story also kind of rings a bell with regard to stories of the kind of research they were doing on bats at the Wuhan project in China. Possibly using bats as potential spreaders of a plague? Hmm. Of course, it's all just rumor. I'm sure the United States wouldn't be involved in spending money on research like that. As our story continues, the project was transferred to an auxiliary field under construction at Carlsbad, and secret tests were continued. This time, bats were placed in ice cube trays and cooled off to place them in hibernation. They were then positioned in cardboard cartons for the drop test. Captain Carr explained the procedure. Bats were taken from the refrigeration truck in a hibernated state in lots of approximately 50 each. They were taken individually by a biologist, and about a one-half inch of loose chest skin was pinched away from the flesh. While this operation was being done, another group was preparing the incendiaries. One operator injected the solution in the delay mechanism. Another sealed the hole with wax, and another placed a surgical clip that was fastened to the incendiary by a short string. The incendiary was then handed to a trained helper who fastened it to the chest of the bat. Drops of the bats were made with dummy bombs from a B-25 and a Piper L-4 cub, but troubles once again developed. Many of the bats didn't awaken from hibernation in time to be able to fly. The cardboard cartons didn't always open properly, and the surgical clips proved difficult to attach to the chests of the bats. Team members worked to resolve these problems, and more bats were secured. This time, however, they woke up too quickly when they were released, and then they escaped. Captain Carr stated in an interim report, The bats used at Carlsbad weighed an average of 9 grams. They could carry 11 grams without any trouble, and 18 grams satisfactorily. But 22 grams appeared to be excessive. These didn't fly very far, and three returned in a few minutes to the building where we were working. One flew underneath, one landed on the roof, and one attached itself to the wall. The ones with 11-gram dummies flew out of sight. The next day, an examination of the grounds around the ranch house about two miles away from the point of release disclosed two dummies inside the porch, 
one beside the house and one inside the barn. I can't help but smile as I picture all these bats accidentally dropping incendiaries on the scientists. Tests continued, and more than 6,000 bats were used in the experiments. In a report dated June 8, 1943, Carr stated that if further tests were to be carried out, a better time-delay parachute-type container, new clips, and a simplified time-delay igniter should be designed. He added that testing was concluded when a fire destroyed a large portion of the test material. What he didn't point out was that a barracks, a control tower, and other buildings at the Carlsbad Auxiliary Field had been set afire by the bats on the not-yet-occupied base. <laughs> I can't believe this story. I don't know how we won World War II. The Army had had enough of that experiment by August 1943, and the project was passed to the Navy and assigned to the Marine Corps as Project X-Ray. Marines were assigned to guard four bat caves in Texas. That was a tough assignment, and their first test began on December 13, 1943. Experiments were carried out with improved egg crate trays and bombshells. In the course of those tests, 30 fires were started, 22 of which went out on their own. New and more powerful incendiaries were ordered, and a full <laughs> new and more powerful incendiaries were then ordered, and full-scale tests were planned for August of 1944. However, when the Navy learned that it would take until mid-1945 to complete the test, the 27-month $2 million project was canceled, not based on any shortcomings of the incendiary and time, and time units developed, according to the notice, but rather upon the shortcomings of the fundamental idea and the opportunity of getting sufficient reliable data in order to plan a timely operation. <clears throat> One positive there, it only cost $2 million. Today it would cost $200 million. Adams, of course, was very disappointed. He maintained that fires set by bat bombers could have been more destructive to Japanese cities than the two atomic bombs. He noted that bats had scattered up to 20 miles during the test, adding, Think of thousands of fires breaking out simultaneously over a circle of 40 miles in diameter for every bomb dropped. Japan could have been devastated by bats, and with a small loss of life. Many of our listeners, steeped in history as they are, are familiar with General William Donovan, the father of American intelligence, an architect of CIA's World War II predecessor, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. You've come to recognize him as an unorthodox frontline leader who believed so strongly in the power of intelligence and lobbied so fiercely for a permanent U.S. intelligence body that he was willing to put a promising future in Washington and his reputation on the line. According to some folks who knew him, Bill Donovan had a wild streak. It was a number of unorthodox leadership traits which earned him the nickname Wild Bill Donovan, a name he was given during World War I. Donovan was born in 1883 and was drawn to service at an early age. At 29 years old, after graduating from Columbia Law School, he joined the New York National Guard's 69th Fighting Irish Regiment as a captain. Not long after, at the onset of World War I, Donovan answered the nation's call once again, serving in the 165th Regiment of the U.S. Army. It was here that the legend of Wild Bill actually began. According to Douglas Waller, author of Wild Bill Donovan, the spymaster who created the OSS and modern American espionage, the story goes something like this. After once running them, the troops in his unit in Europe during World War I, in full packs on a three-mile obstacle course over walls, under barbed wire, through icy streams, and up and down hills, the men collapsed, gasping for air. "'What the hell's the matter with you guys?' demanded Donovan, who had just turned thirty-five and carried the same load as the others. "'I haven't lost my breath.' A trooper in the back whom Donovan couldn't see shouted, "'But hell, we're not as wild as you are, Bill!' From that day on, Wild Bill stuck. Donovan professed annoyance with the nickname because it ran counter to the quiet, intense image he wanted to project. But Ruth, his wife, knew that deep down... He loved being called Wild Bill. As a leader, Donovan demanded excellence from the troops in his battalion, but always led by example, on and off the battlefield. By the end of the war, Donovan had been wounded in action on three separate occasions. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Distinguished Service Medal, and, for bravery under fire, between 15 and 16 October 1918, near Landre et Saint-Georges, France, the Medal of Honor.
"'Many people don't know that he was among the most highly decorated U.S. soldiers in World War I. "'In the mid-forties, with America in the throes of World War II, "'Donovan's OSS was working diligently to develop innovative solutions "'to aid in its covert operations across the globe. "'Recognizing the strategic need for silenced weaponry, "'OSS's Research and Development Wing, "'under the direction of OSS Director for R&D Stanley Lovell, was hard at work looking for ways to modify weapons which would allow OSS officers and warfighters to operate covertly. In 1944, after a breakthrough in research and development, Donovan brought the silencer to the White House, eager to show it to President Franklin Roosevelt. Upon arrival, General Donovan was told that the president was occupied with other business and they would have to wait while the president finished his meeting. Not known as a patient man, Donovan recognized a ripe opportunity to display the tactical advantage afforded by his officer's new weapon. Still inside the White House, Donovan set up a sandbag and, from across the room, proceeded to fire ten rounds into the bag. When the president ended his meeting, Donovan pulled out the sandbag and told the president what he had just done. Roosevelt was incredulous that such a feat could have been pulled off, especially in an area as highly guarded as the White House. He was so impressed, in fact, that he decided to hang on to that silencer, and it's still displayed at his presidential library in Hyde Park, New York. By the time of the Allied invasion on the beaches of Normandy, General Donovan was a well-established senior leader in U.S. government. As the head of OSS, he was responsible for directing the agency's wartime intelligence gathering and non-traditional warfare operations. His days of charging at the enemy, weapon in hand, side by side with his troops, was well behind him. Somebody should have probably mentioned that to him, as he insisted on being with the troops on D-Day. Author Douglas Waller recounts the incredible efforts made by Donovan to get himself onto the beaches of Normandy for that assault. He wrote, Eisenhower agreed that the Normandy beach was no place for America's top intelligence officer. Navy Secretary James Forrestal has sent London Station Chief David Bruce a cable he wanted passed onto Donovan, telling him he was not to board any U.S. naval craft. Donovan turned on the Irish charm and begged his only naval pal to cut orders attaching him to one of the ships making the landing. When that didn't work, according to Waller, Donovan found another solution. On June 6, 1942, D-Day Plus 2, he arrived with the rest of the fleet at Utah Beach on the Contentin Peninsula in Normandy. He waited all of one day before getting his boots in the sand Despite strong objections from a ship's admiral, Donovan would not be denied the opportunity to join the battle. After a rocky landing and more than a few close calls on the beach, having nearly been killed by strafing German fighter planes and machine gun fire, Donovan and OSS London Chief Bruce made it safely to their destination, the 7th Corps Command Post. To Donovan, there was no greater calling than being on the field of battle with his soldiers. Donovan's life and career were filled with similar examples of strong will and at times defiance. He lived as he preached, and made every effort to remain at the tip of the spear in any engagement. In fact, that tip of the spear mentality was depicted in the OSS insignia, which featured a gold spearhead and a black background. The spear lives on today in the logo of CIS Directorate of Operations. And while we're talking about the OSS in World War II, I can't resist Resharing this story about America's first and favorite TV chef, Julia Child, a tale which we shared years ago here at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and one that deserves retelling. As most of our over 40 age listeners know, Julia Child was America's first TV chef. This was back in the 50s when TV was black and white. What very few TV viewers knew at the time was that their beloved talkative chef was an OSS agent working overseas in the Second World War, and that her first cooking assignment was to cook up a shark repellent, which hopefully would deter sharks from servicemen who, for any number of reasons, found themselves adrift in dangerous waters. Julia Child was born Julia Carolyn McWilliams on August 15, 1912, in Pasadena, California. She grew up sheltered and privileged. Her father, John McWilliams, Jr., was a successful banker, while their mother, Julia Carolyn Weston, was heiress to the Weston Paper Company in Massachusetts. As such, Child received a quality education. She attended the Catherine Branson School for Girls, a prep school in California, where her statuesque six-foot-two figure made her captain of the basketball team 
and president of the hiking club. Later she attended the all-women's Smith College as her mother and aunt had before her, majoring in history. She was active in college clubs like the Grass Cops, which kept students off the school's precious lawn. But Julia barely showed any special interest other than a vague ambition of becoming a writer. In her diary she wrote, I am sadly an ordinary person, with talents I do not use. After college, Julia Child took a secretarial course at the Packard Commercial School, but quit after a month when she landed a job as a secretary with W.J. Sloan, a home furnishings company based in New York City. She worked there for four years until she was fired after a document mix-up. But her seemingly mundane career trajectory in stenography soon took a drastic turn as the country prepared to enter World War II. Like many Americans at the time, Julia Child wanted to help the country prepare for war. In September of 41, three months before the U.S. entered the Second World War, she began volunteering with the Pasadena chapter of the American Red Cross, where she headed the Department of Stenographic Services. She also worked in the Aircraft Warning Service, a civilian service branch of the U.S. Army tasked to monitor enemy aircraft entering American airspace. Unfortunately, when she tried to join the military for good, she was rejected from both the Women's Army Corps, those were called the WACs, and the women accepted for volunteer emergency service, or WAVES, because she was too tall. Undeterred, Julie Child found another way to contribute to the war efforts. In 1942, she became a senior typist with the research unit of the Office of War Information in Washington, D.C., and by the end of that year, she was a junior research assistant with the Secret Intelligence Branch of the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the Central Intelligence Agency. She was among the 4,500 women who served in the OSS. As a research assistant for the OSS Secret Intelligence, Julia Child recorded thousands of officer names into the agency's internal database system and handled highly classified intelligence documents. Later, her spy career took her to the Emergency Sea Rescue Equipment Section, where she helped develop a recipe for shark repellent. There had been multiple shark attacks against U.S. naval officers since the start of the war. Curious sharks also often set off explosives meant to attack enemy parties. The OSS was tasked to create a shark repellent that could be used for the military's underwater endeavors. After much trial and error involving over a hundred different substances, including poisons, organic acids, and even decayed shark meat, the research team, which included Julia Child, found copper acetate to be the most effective repellent. In a later interview, she described her shark repellent formula as her first major recipe. I must say we had lots of fun, she told Elizabeth McIntosh, another OSS officer who interviewed her for her book, Sisterhood of Spies, the Women of the OSS. Child said, We designed rescue kits and other agent paraphernalia. I understand the shark repellent we developed is being used today for downed space equipment. Trapped around it, so the sharks won't attack it when it lands in the ocean. The shark repellent, dubbed Shark Chaser, was issued by the Navy based on Child's original recipe until the 1970s. Still, it's clear that she made a big impact in her time at the OSS, but she was destined to transform herself one more time. She was placed at multiple stations abroad during her career as an intelligence officer with the OSS, holding positions in China and India. In 1944, she was sent to work in Kandy, Sri Lanka, where she met her husband, Paul Child, a fellow OSS officer. After the couple married, they moved to Paris, France, where her husband was assigned to the U.S. Information Agency in 1948. It was during their time in France that Child, whose privileged upbringing left her with no cooking skills, became enamored with French cuisine. Her spy days ended when she left the OSS following the end of World War II. To fill her newly freed-up schedule, she enrolled in a school called Le Cordon Bleu, one of France's most prestigious cooking schools. It was an ambitious undertaking since, as Child put it, she could only, she could only boil water for tea. My first big recipe was shark repellent that I mixed in a bathtub for the Navy for the men who might get caught in the water, she once said in a 2012 interview with the Christian Science Monitor. But she was about to come up with a lot of new recipes. When she wasn't in cooking class at Le Cordon Bleu, she studied French and roamed the Parisian street markets for local ingredients to incorporate in her cooking. And after she graduated, Julia Child met Simone Beck and Louisette Bertol, 
who were in the midst of writing a cookbook for American readers. The three joined forces to complete the project, a book called Mastering the Art of French Cooking. It took ten years of toiling in the kitchen for new recipes and rewriting and editing the book's manuscript before it was finally picked up by a major publisher. It was a grueling process, but child loved it. Really, she said, the more I cook, the more I like to cook. To think it's taken me 40 years to find my true passion. Cat and husband accepted. She wrote to her sister-in-law. Her cookbook, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, was finally published in 1961, and the rest is now history. After her success with the book, she landed her own show as The French Chef, and that cooking show was among the first of its kind on TV, showcasing not only her impeccable culinary skills, but also her charm as a television personality. The show produced 199 episodes, which aired between 1963 and 1966, and cemented her as a cooking icon. Boeuf bourguignon. French beef stew in red wine. We're going to serve it with braised onions and mushrooms and a wine dark sauce. It's a perfectly delicious dish. Hello, I'm Julia Child. Welcome to the French Chef and the first show on our series on French cooking. We're going to make boeuf bourguignon, beef stew, and red wine. And it's a wonderful show to begin our series on because it shows you so many useful things about French cooking. How to brown meat, how to braise onions, how to saute mushrooms, how to make a wonderful sauce. And you make a boeuf bourguignon just the way you make any other kind of a stew, like chicken, cocovin, you can make lamb this way or veal this way. And now here's our beef. And I've made quite a few beef stews lately, getting ready for this program. And I've tried several different cuts, some from the leg called the, the top round and the bottom round. And from all the stews I've made, I find that I like chuck the best. So these are various pieces of chuck. This is called the chuck tender, and it comes from the shoulder. She went on after that to write multiple other cookbooks and co-founded institutes such as the American Institute of Wine and Food and the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and Culinary Arts. She also received honors for her culinary prowess, including the French Legion of Honor, the highest order of merit that can be awarded to civilians and military members. She died at the age of 91 in 2004. Outside of the kitchen, her influence has been felt in popular culture, too. She's been parodied by none other than Dan Aykroyd on Saturday Night Live, impersonated by RuPaul's Drag Race, and brilliantly portrayed by Meryl Streep in the 2009 feature film Julie and Julia. More profoundly, Child is credited for galvanizing American cooks in the kitchen and as a proponent of guilt-free cooking thanks to her famous love of butter. And now you know the rest of the story before she captured the hearts of American viewers on screen. And speaking of the rest of the story, who was Paul Harvey? And how did Paul Harvey ever get connected to the expression of the rest of the story? Say conservative radio to most young people today, and they'll likely come up with names like Sean Hannity, Charlie Kirk, Lawrence Jones, Ben Shapiro, Shannon Bream, or a host of others. But those guys and gals are the offspring of the industry's grandfather, one who told stories more often than he raised his voice and who narrated history and the present to a generation of young listeners, and did it in a way that was interesting and made knowing history a passion. He inspired me as a young boy to learn more about history. He was steadfast in pride for his country and respect for the American working man. In fact, we'll end this segment with a story about the American farmer. His name was Paul Harvey, and his gentle storytelling program was the launching pad for an entire cast of well-known faces from today's conservative movement although his five-minute average stories were people stories for the most part and not conservative diatribes. Paul Harvey was a great history teacher with a velvety voice that turned the news into narrative and entertainment each week on his famous segment called The Rest of the Story.
For more than three decades, from the 70s to his death in 2009, Harvey would address his millions of listeners six days a week, giving them the backstory to people, things, and events, both famous and not so well known, in five-minute episodes that always left us hanging for the final answer. Right after the commercial, of course. From the origin of Coca-Cola to an account of JFK's assassination through his widow's eyes, from his tales of Elvis Presley's childhood to the Revolutionary War, or the story of how O'Hare Airport got its name, the Oklahoma native had a magical fluidity to his storytelling. To hear him now is to feel at least a little nostalgic for that classic radio mid-American accent. Now, the rest of the story. Willie was a senior at Steele High School, an outstanding student, especially in the subjects of literature, history, and science. He planned to attend Yale Divinity School after graduation. Willie was also a fine athlete, baseball, football, hockey, gymnastics. In fact, he was playing hockey with the high school varsity team one March day, when all at once his promising future blew away like dandelion fluff. Young fellow on the other team didn't mean to hurt Willie. He just swung his stick back, accidentally striking Willie in the face, but the damage was considerable. Willie, who weighed less than 140 pounds, was knocked flat on his back. His front teeth went flying in all directions. His mouth was bloody hamburger. A surgeon did the best he could. Willie would have to stay home and rest for a while, but before the teenager was well enough to return to school, he developed terrible stomach trouble and then heart trouble. Now he was a semi-invalid. The pressure of his studies would prove intolerable. So Willie dropped out of school. Willie dropped out of high school. There would be no Yale, no ministry. The family's hopes for academic distinction now rested with Willie's kid brother. I said the family's hopes for academic distinction now rested with Willie's kid brother. But this is the rest of the story. Little brother disliked school. He was a bright pupil, just not sufficiently inspired by the curriculum. And something else, the teachers were often tough on him. Back in sixth grade, for example, the youngster, this is the younger brother now, remember, got into a bit of minor mischief for which his teacher, Miss Bond, sent him home, and he was told not to return until Miss Bond had met personally with one of his parents. There were two weeks left before the end of school year. Dad was away on business. Mother was otherwise busy, so the little boy, well, he never did finish the sixth grade. The family had moved to another town before he re-entered high school. He got good grades, but once again failed to win the respect of many of his instructors, and that may have exasperated him more than he let on. Anyway, one day before graduation, the boy quit school forever. Now, his excuse was that there were too many required subjects that did not interest him. That was the reason he gave for dropping out. In any event, his academic career was over, as was his older brothers. And surely their father must have anguished over the future of his sons. Those two boys who would forever be high school dropouts in a highly competitive world. Well, the boys drifted in and out of some ordinary jobs. But then one day, these two dropouts, these two lads, neither of whom was making it in any specific job, teamed up. And the result was one of the greatest achievements in the history of mankind. Your notions may have been misconceived regarding the two men who took that first giant leap at Kitty Hawk. Now I hope you'll always remember their initial underachievement. The two high school dropouts, Wilbur and Orville, the Wright brothers. Because now you know the rest of the story. He was born Paul Harvey Orent, September 4th, 1918 and most of us knew him as an American radio broadcaster for ABC News. He broadcast news and comment on mornings and middays on weekdays, and at noon on Saturdays, and also his famous The Rest of the Story segments. 
from 1951 to 2008. 57 years. His programs reached as many as 24 million people per week. Paul Harvey News was carried on 1,200 radio stations, on 400 American Forces network stations, and in 300 newspapers. And here's the rest of the story on Paul Harvey, which few people know. He was born in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and he was the son of a policeman who was killed by robbers in 1921. He made radio receivers as a young boy and attended Tulsa Central High School, where he was two years ahead of future actor Tony Randall. Teacher Isabel Ronan was impressed by his voice. On her recommendations, he started working at KVOO in Tulsa in 1933, helping to clean up when he was 14. He eventually was allowed to fill in on the air by reading commercials and the news. He continued working at KVOO while he attended the University of Tulsa, first as an announcer and later as a program director. He spent three years as a station manager for KFBI-AM, now known as KFDI, a radio station that once had studios in Salina, Kansas. From there, he moved to a newscasting job at KOMA in Oklahoma City, and then to KXOK in St. Louis in 1938, where he was director of special events and a roving reporter. He then moved to Hawaii to cover the U.S. Navy as it concentrated its fleet in the Pacific. He was returning to the mainland from assignment when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. He enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Force and served as a pilot from December of 43 to March of 1944. He then moved to Chicago, where in June of 1944, he began broadcasting from the ABC affiliate WENR. In 1945, he began hosting the post-war employment program Jobs for G.I. Joe on WENR. He added the rest of the story as a tagline to his in-depth feature stories in 1946. On April 1, 1951, the ABC radio network debuted Paul Harvey News and Comet with a noontime slot on weekdays. His network television debut came on November 16, 1952, when he began a 15-minute newscast on ABC. Later, Harvey began to host a separate program called The Rest of the Story, in which he provided backstories behind famous people and events. The Rest of the Story, as we know it today, premiered on May 10, 1976, on ABC Radio. The series quickly grew to six broadcasts a week and continued until his death in 2009. It was written and produced by his son, Paul Harvey Jr., from its outset, and for its 33-year duration. In November 2000, Harvey signed a 10-year, $100 million contract with ABC Radio Networks. A few months later, after damaging his vocal cords, he went off the air, but returned in August of 2001. His success with sponsors stemmed from the seamlessness with which he segued from his monologue into reading commercial messages. He explained his relationship with them, I am fiercely loyal to those willing to put their money where my mouth is. Harvey did not host the show full-time after April 2008 when he came down with pneumonia. Shortly after his recovery, his wife died on May 3rd, which caused him to prolong his time away from broadcasting. He railed against welfare cheats and defended the death penalty. He worried about the national debt, big government, bureaucrats who lacked common sense, permissive parents, leftist radicals, and America succumbing to moral decay. He championed rugged individualism, love of God and country, and the fundamental decency of ordinary people. One of his most famous radio pieces was, If I Were the Devil, How I Would Destroy America. Harvey was elected to the National Association of Broadcasters National Radio Hall of Fame and the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, and appeared on the Gallup poll list of America's Most Admired Men. In addition, he received 11 Freedom Foundation Awards, as well as the Horatio Alger Award. In 2005, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the United States' most prestigious civilian award by President George W. Bush. Bush's remarks summarized Harvey's career. He first went on the air in 1933, and he's been heard nationwide for 54 years. Americans like the sound of his voice. Over the decades, we've come to recognize in that voice some of the finest qualities of our country. Patriotism, the good humor, the kindness, and common sense of Americans. On May 18, 2007, he received an honorary degree from Washington University in St. Louis. 
His wife, Lynn Harvey, by the way, was the first producer inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame, and she had developed some of her husband's best-known features, including the rest of the story. That was her creative deal. While working on her husband's radio show, she established 10 p.m. as the first hour in which news is broadcast. She was the first woman to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Chicago Chapter of American Women in Radio and Television. She worked in TV also and created a television show called Dilemma, which is acknowledged as the prototype of the modern talk show genre. While working at CBS, she was among the first women to produce an entire newscast. In later years, she was best known for her philanthropy. They had one son, Paul Oranta Jr., who goes by the name of Paul Harvey Jr., and as you already know, he wrote most of the rest of the story shows and assisted his father at news and comment. His voice also announced the bumpers between episodes and filled in for his father during broadcast and broadcast the morning editions after the passing of his mother. He was the one who, at the death of his father in 2009, said, Millions have lost a friend. On February 3, 2013, a recording of Paul Harvey's So God Made a Farmer commentary was used by Ram Trucks in a commercial titled Farmer, which aired during Super Bowl 57. And we've chosen to end our story today with So God Made a Farmer. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his planned paradise and said, I need a caretaker. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody willing to get up before dawn, milk cows, work all day in the fields, milk cows again, eat supper, then go to town and stay past midnight at a meeting of the school board. So God made a farmer. I need somebody with arms strong enough to wrestle a calf and yet gentle enough to deliver his own grandchild. Somebody to call hogs, tame cantankerous machinery, come home hungry, have to wait lunch until his wife's done feeding visiting ladies, then tell the ladies to be sure and come back real soon and mean it. So God made a farmer. God said I need somebody willing to sit up all night with a newborn colt and watch it die and dry his eyes and say maybe next year. I need somebody who can shape an axe handle from a persimmon sprout, shoe a horse with a hunk of car tire, who can make harness out of hay wire, feed sacks, and shoe scraps, who planting time and harvest season will finish his 40-hour week by Tuesday noon and then pain in from tractor back, put in another 72 hours. So God made a farmer. God had to have somebody willing to ride the ruts at double speed to get the hay in ahead of the rain clouds and yet stop in midfield and race to help when he sees the first smoke from a neighbor's place. So God made a farmer. God said, I need somebody strong enough to clear trees and heave bales, yet gentle enough to yean lambs and wean pigs and tend the pink-combed pullets who will stop his mower for an hour to splint the broken leg of a meadowlark. It had to be somebody who'd plow deep and straight and not cut corners, somebody to seed, weed, feed, breed, and rake, and disc, and plow, and plant, and tie the fleece, and strain the milk, and replenish the self-feeder, and finish a hard week's work with a five-mile drive to church. Somebody who'd bail a family together with the soft, strong bonds of sharing, who would laugh and then sigh and then reply with smiling eyes when his son says that he wants to spend his life doing what dad does. So God made a farmer. Thank you for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and kind reviews are always appreciated. Until next Sunday at 12 noon Eastern Time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.